Guys, what is up? This is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. I really am. I gotta tell you something. Have you ever had an interaction with a stranger, with a person that somehow gave you some kind of like foundational reassurance of humanity? It encouraged you. It empowered you. Today, I have a conversation with someone that my experience is, is something like what I just described. I had a conversation with Terry Patton. Terry is an author, a speaker, a teacher. Terry has been involved in civil rights movements, peace movements, apartheid. He is a part of the Integral Institute and his close cohorts with Ken Wilber. He is an OG in the human potential movement. He has been thinking about where we're going and what that place might look like and what frameworks we ought use to think about where we want to go and what is good and what is best. He is also... I don't even, he, he gives, he gives us a pretty good origin story here, right in the beginning of this podcast. So I don't want to try to take that, uh, which I really appreciate. I, I right in the beginning of this interview, you're going to hear that I kind of like try to start extracting knowledge from him. And Terry just so elegantly says, yes, 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 knowledge, but, but, but first my experience. And that's just such a beautiful um, example of what uh, we kind of need these days. And to be totally honest, this conversation left me feeling so empowered and seen and heard and inspired. And so I'm so, so, so grateful for Terry, not only for his time, but just for his fucking existence. Like, I'm so glad that people like this exist. And I'm so, so, so glad to bring you a conversation with people like Terry on this podcast. Please, please, please look up Terry Patton's work. He just uh, released his book, uh, New Republic of the Heart. Yeah, wow. I honestly, I was laying in bed last night thinking about this conversation and just feeling so, so, so grateful that I have these opportunities to connect with people whose work inspires me and to allow them to encourage me. And I feel so, so, so encouraged by this conversation with Terry Patton. So I love you, Terry Patton. Thank you so much. This guy is definitely going to be back on the podcast if you like this podcast, share it, subscribe, leave a review, consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I'm working really hard to bring you conversations that are useful right now. I am accepting my role as the new pirate radio folks. So if you think that this is the kind of message, these are the kind of conversations we need to be having, I need you to play your part, okay? I need you to play your part. So, whew, without further ado, here is... What is likely my favorite conversation I've ever had on this podcast? This is with my new friend, my new mentor, Terry Patton. 
<laughs> you know, I am a live wire. Yeah, guilty as charged. I, um, yeah, I'm glad you watched that video. I pour my heart and soul into some of the films that I've made for sponsors over the years, and that's definitely one of them. Mm. So I'm curious, you know, to hear, maybe it's a very brief version of it, but uh, you have some sort of wild origin story here, and I don't know it, and I'm curious to get mm. to it a little bit. Mm, yeah, I'd love to share that with you. So I'm here in Bend, Oregon, and uh, my great-grandparents homesteaded just west of Smith Rock, which, if you're familiar, is a, a state park that is one of the meccas of rock climbing in the world and is very beautiful. They homesteaded there in 1939 and were cattle ranchers. And so I was born in Bend and raised in Redmond. And so my father was a water skier and a snow skier. And so I grew up skiing and wakeboarding and camping. And by the time I was 12, I was doing backflips on my skis. And then by the time I was driving, I was skipping high school to be at the mountain, going off big jumps, uh, which turned into a full-fledged addiction. I skied 150 days a year, semi-professionally, um, kind of in a dirt bag way, you know, trying to cover my costs and eating bananas and bagels and um, going off big jumps. And uh, one winter, it didn't snow much and I learned how to highline. And highlining took over my life then. And I was still skiing probably 75 days a year at that point and learned to highline. And that just became this a totally different uh, experience. Uh, going off of a big jump on skis is very time bound. It's like it is going off of a jump on skis is an opportunity. It is a chance for you to face your fear and do what you planned on doing at a exact moment and your success or failure is very obvious mere seconds after that right where highlining especially long highlines the fear the anticipation the expectation all of these experiences this these emotions are drawn out and it's way 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 longer and then so uh, about five years ago through filmmaking, I ended up interacting with paragliding. Uh, we made this crazy film of this stunt where a base jumper tied a rope and a handle to one paraglider and then jumped out of a tandem paraglider, connect to the other paraglider and let go and, and pulled his parachute. And so that was my first experience with paragliding. And that winter I learned to paraglide and then paragliding totally took over my life. I've flown my paraglider in 12 countries on five continents, um, you know, more than a hundred miles in a single flight up to altitudes over 16,000 feet. And, uh, paragliding is almost wow. a, yeah, it's almost a culmination of those two sports. And then an addition of, a this other dimension, the adding a third dimension to your sport, it has catalyzed in me a new perspective seeing my own hometown like i have flown uh from my local flying site 
back to Bend, it's about 30 miles. I've made that flight about five times and I've arrived over Bend. One time I arrived at 13,000 feet and Bend is at 3,000 feet. So to be 10,000 feet over my hometown, it, it, to, to have a physical perspective change has really helped catalyze a willingness to just open up to new perspectives. And so most of the things that I know experientially, most of the, like the deep knowings that I have, have been extracted through sport, have been these repetitive, you know, going into that liminal space, going into that void, that unknowing, that challenge, the fear, the doubt, all of these things, I've just gone into that over and over and over and over and over. And so the things that I really know, I know through that world and the relationships that I've built with people, I've built because we literally put our life in each other's hands time and time again. So that's kind of... It's interesting how many of my friends are lifelong athletes. Hmm even though I'm totally not. I was a bookish kid who was a total nerd, but uh, I find over time in my life, I became way more physical and engaged and loved, you know, nature was my, just hiking and stuff, you know, nothing, no extreme. Um, but uh, my, my best, best buddy, for years and years and years was uh, his friends would say the tragedy of his life was he was pre video. Uh, he was a rope swinger who could uh, do magic, you know, who could, who could whip himself, you know, like the, the tuft of the rope would brush a rock and he could hold his, his body up above it and, you know, wild, wild stuff. Nice. Great stuff. Nice. Yeah. yeah there's, there's lots of lessons to be learned when your hide is on the line. It tends to make some kind of visceral um, imprint and provides kind of a space for us to take, to, to understand things and to take things with a weight that I think that we're seeing now in this new time between worlds as Stein puts it. It's like our hides have actually been on the line the entire time and we have been asleep to that reality. Exactly. So it's an interesting, um, I'm seeing it as kind of an interesting position to come from because I feel like people are kind of coming into this space of, wow, maybe I really am swinging on a rope with my own bare hands and my hide is on the line here. And yeah, I think that collectively we are, um, in much less of a certain and safe position than what was assumed mere months ago. Yeah. And so just to, I, two years ago was introduced to Ken Wilber's work and who you've co-authored a book, Integral Life Practices with, and Ken is the, philosopher who kind of developed this integral theory. And so I've been kind of shooting the shit on these ideas for quite some time, going back and forth with my friends on what integral uh, actually is and what it means and how it affects 
how we think about things. And Zach Stein just has my absolute rapt attention right now. I'm deep into his book, Education in a Time Between Worlds. And I just find him to just be brilliant. And um, so I would love to hear from you, who I would consider an OG, original gangster of integral (laughs) theory. (laughs) I would love to hear from you what integral is what what it is how is it a way to frame our thinking what it what it is and how does it affect us and what do we have to gain from it right now um i'm i'm not unwilling to do some of that it might be good for me to um give you a a really high level uh uh 3 minute bio and uh and and Part of that will be to clarify my. I would love that with Ken and Integral. Um, when I was six, my parents moved into an intentional community outside Chicago called the York Center Community Co-op. That in back in the '40s was interracial, and it had been founded by members of one of the peace churches, the Brethren. But there were Quakers and all these pacifists and folks. So I was kind of raised in the civil rights and the peace movement, and. Uh, raised to be a uh, revolutionary. So uh, in in high school, I got very involved in the anti-Vietnam stuff and, oh, you know, apartheid South South Africa and various civil rights things. And uh, that was kind of my identity, although I was also uh, kind of a poet. I'd always had a mystical side, although I didn't know that. My parents were secular. Uh, Jewish Christian, they the way they brought themselves together was to sleep late on both Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then in in college at the Ann Arbor, I uh, began to recognize the immaturity and adolescence of thinking we knew better, and, and mm. the, the radical political movement was was right about a whole, you know, would you rather be right or be effective? Would you rather be of benefit or be right? And I, I felt there was some really important limitations. That drew me into the human potential movement, dropped out of college, went out to a place sort of like Esalen, was a resident there for a while. And then through that realized I needed to really reformat the hard drive. So I found my way to Adi Da, who you may have heard of. He's uh, uh Boy, how do you say that quickly? Adi Da was one of the greatest spiritual realizers of all time who gave two fingers to the man in every possible way, is generally regarded as sort of a poster boy for the uh, narcissistic guru cult leader. But, you know, Ken Wilber has said nobody who's a serious student of four or five fields can afford not to be a student of Adi Da, his favorite spiritual writer of all time in any tradition. You know, Adi Da is both great and very difficult uh, character. Uh, I spent 15 years from the age of 22 to 37. I kind of ruined my life on, on the ashram. Like, no, no, no credentials, no financial gains, no uh, nothing. And emerged from that, uh, well, I did, I did uh, you know, you kind of had a day job while you're mainly a devotee. So I, I, I gained some skills. And then uh, 
I started a company called Tools for Exploration, Consciousness Technologies, uh, home EEGs, uh, all the brain entrainment stuff, worked with HeartMath folks. Built that company up, sold it 10 years later, uh, took some time off, began writing a book, showed it to the guy I respected most, which was Ken Wilbur. He invited me to join the team at Integral Institute. I began creating Integral Life Practice with him and a whole bunch of other good folks. And so then I taught Integral Life Practice on and off for the last 15 years or so. But for me, it was always uh, this, this arc was kind of like social change is the priority, but you've got to transform your consciousness if you want to be something different and bring that to anybody else. And then I began to feel that the reflexive intellectuality that dominant, some of the best thought is still thwarted by the fact that responding to everything as if it's something to be figured out or comprehended from a more comprehensive place is not necessarily, that does not necessarily follow. And, and, and so the habit of a lot of the best philosophical theoretical work is still self uh, undermining. And so I've, I've always been a little strange. I mean, I've hung out with the enlightened fools, uh, I guess. And that's yeah. why half of them are jocks. Half of them are just people whose body got so ecstatic with a life force <laughs> that it made them, you know, they went mad that way. You know, maybe some drugs too, some entheogens, this and that. But the way they broke from the paradigm was that sheer vitality. And I've, it's, it's that ah, intensity that I share with my... Uh, with people who have have spent more time in extreme sports like yourself. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, about five years ago, I really got my draft notice realizing that the speed with which the system was coming unraveled was way, way faster than I expected. And that the, the particularly the ecological predicament. So this book, a new Republic of the heart, I began writing uh, about five years ago and, well, that's not true. I had written a version of it back in 2004 that I showed to Ken Wilber. I wrote that book four times. I threw out three drafts. The book that ended up appearing, I think, really does stand the, I mean, it looks prescient, you know, today. And uh, I really didn't want to write lots of books. I wanted to write a single book that it would be a life-changing experience for the reader. And uh, so I just kind of reformulated my work. I no longer felt like, although integral life practice rightly understood, and, see, and, and there were all kinds of things that Ken didn't include. Ken does not include the body, the life force, feeling, the heart. All those things are de-emphasized by Ken personally because big picture thinking, you know, in his organ is 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 the cranium you know he's a cerebrotonic ectomorph uh, as he as he likes to put it. Uh, uh, so if you like your sausage don't watch it be made if you like your anything 
don't watch don't watch it be made in a way everybody is a cartoon character everybody is foibled and anybody who is putting forth something that is really the higher level of whatever the heck it is and drawing themselves together in a posture of dignity and taking themselves really seriously is bullshitting themselves and you so uh the the that that's okay. That, I mean, those limitations pertain. But you know, I, I used to joke that Adi Das Ashram was my second dysfunctional family of origin, and Integral's my third dysfunctional family of origin. I I'm not really. I, I'm kind of looked upon as one of the original Integral teachers, and that's fine. But uh, the integration of a social responsibility in a time of civilizational crisis is absolutely one of Ken Wilber's personal blind spots. He's, he's not contributing directly to that consideration in a way that addresses whatever is timely and requires action. He's always going meta and helping you see the bigger picture in which things arise. And that's often really valuable and important. Mm -hmm. But as a chronic attitude of going meta, there's a article I wrote with uh, Marco Morelli, gosh, 10 years ago, probably now, called uh, Occupy Integral, which was a kind of a, uh, a critique of a kind. Yeah, I think that's an interesting critique of the of Ken's particular shtick. Um, and yeah, as you listen to Ken and read his work, he is uh, almost extraterrestrial in his ability to zoom out. It's like he's looking at Earth from Mars. Yeah. Which I think is a really valuable thing. I think that you start to see interdependence, interconnection, um, oneness in a way that uh, as we mill around staring at our feet, we don't quite realize. Right. So help me... I just, I would love to hear from you when people say, oh, integral, what, is inter what does integral even mean? Okay, well, uh, what integral means, you kind of go to some words that derive from it, like structural integrity, it has to do with wholeness, but also words like integration, meaning including some part of that whole that might have been previously excluded. And when you integrate it, there's a reorganization of the whole, the part informs the whole. So there's this part whole uh, reference that's at the core of integral. And uh, it can be summarized as every, uh, every perspective is true and partial is one simple summary. Another summary of integral is that uh, everything evolves, including our consciousness and our ways of being. Another way of identifying what is referred to there is just holism. It's just the, uh, the understanding that all that is happening is related to all else that is happening, a kind of holographic or integrated perspective that's multidimensional. And a lot of the conversation about integral is really centered around Ken Wilber and Ken Wilber's particular unique and important contributions theoretically. 
But I think there's a lot of integral, not just integral thought, but integral enactment that doesn't go by the name integral or even the word ever evolutionary. Sometimes evolutionary is the other uh, semi-synonym. And, and, and th those are important because they address the blind partial orientations that are so pervasive and they tend to dominate everybody's uh, engagement in culture. So in integral is very, very valuable because with five simple distinctions, quadrants, levels, lines, states, and types, you can kind of try on enough glasses that boom, 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 they pop you out into a much more multidimensional awareness of lots of what's underlying the way perspectives are structured. The fact that people are very often just non-intersecting perspectives suddenly because, oh yeah, well, this person's orienting from the upper right quadrant and this other person's talking about it in terms of the lower right. And of course, they're never, they're not gonna see things in the same terms. Both of them are, though, are not gonna comprehend what this other fellow is saying from another quadrant or the fact that these people have reified a mythic God is uh, determining the way they're thinking and, this person over here is just wanting to exclude the divine, but they, then they can't tell the difference between the mythic God and a, and a, and a transpersonal uh, development that's fully rational, transrational, inclusive of even more than rationality. So they either throw the baby out with the bathwater or they idealize things without an understanding of their developmental relationship. All those kinds of distinctions suddenly display when you in, internalize the integral the implications of the integral perspective. So it's been a, a psychoactive philosophy that has given a whole lot of people a common language and it's had an international relationship. And it's through that that I felt like there was a circumstance in which I could step forward as a teacher and offer something of some value. And so I'm always just, you know, I'm old good friends with Ken. We love each other. And I'm grateful to him for having created a circumstance where I saw an opening for me to begin teaching because I didn't teach earlier in my life. Yeah, amazing. And I love hearing your story. And for me, my experience with integral thinking, philosophy in general, I feel like it zoomed me out of my own perspective and zoomed out enough that I could see human perspectives from kind of afar. And and the levels of development. And I, for the first time, saw postmodernism stacked on all these other developmental, um, ideological stages that humanity has worked through. And it was that that allowed me to wonder what was next. Mm wonder what was next. And that's when I uh, started interacting with Daniel Schmachtenberger's work. Yeah. And well, there's a brilliant guy. Yeah. And this human potential movement. And um, it's interesting to hear your story about talking about the maturity of adults and the human potential movement. I also, things that stuck out for me as you shared your story was the peace movement. And I am, one of my 
lenses that I see everything in the world is, is through uh, the non-aggression principle and through a lens of what is violence, what is coercion uh, on a subtle level. I think that we all, if, if you don't actually get punched in the face, people don't think that's violence. They don't think that uh, the government has any kind of violent um, tendencies or upholds laws through violence. And so I think there's a more subtle understanding of, of what peace really is. Yeah. Um, so I guess I would just love to jam with you for a moment on what a peace movement actually entails. I feel in myself as I'm maturing, I'm starting to see that I've for decades been at war with myself. I've been at war with different parts of myself. And then I've been in, in some level of perpetual conflict in my interpersonal relationships from my family of origin to my partnerships. And I've been at war with the systems and those are more subtle ways that I've been trying to have like a inner peace revolution. But I think that, um, uh, we are, as you say, we are kind of stuck in this scientific and intellectual conundrum where everything is being looked at as a, as a object to fix, to figure out, to manipulate. And I think that a peace movement is, has an intellectual side, but I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on uh, peace movement in general and especially in our current paradigm. We're now confronted by the fact that world industrial capitalistic global culture has become uh, a single interconnected and uh, entirely uh, unsustainable uh, form. And yet all of the access to information and wisdom and experience and travel that inform us, which you know, we're really among the luckiest people who've ever lived to have that much access to every kind of experience that can expand our awareness, including uh, psychedelic uh, dimensions and all of the uh, rich ways that those are in dialogue with science. Uh, it, sometimes those seem to be divergent, but those who try to integrate are, we're involved in a very broad and very exciting in many ways, collective awakening. Many different syntheses are then being metasynthesized. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this is exerting a, a, a kind of exciting, attractive force toward evolving to new stages and states of consciousness. But the unsustainability of our world system is also exerting a, a, an or else negative uh, influence. We have to evolve or die. And the uh, peace movement that makes any sense in the midst of this is a recognition that the fundamental political issue facing the human species has to do with how do we navigate an epochal transition to something more sustainable. It may be that the deep adaptation folks are right, and there really is no ultimate survival for the species, and that we're in the process of a 
near-term societal collapse that will eventually lead to the species extinction. Even so, all of the transitions that lie before us immediately can be relatively harsh or relatively soft. We can preserve as much as possible of all the beautiful and remarkable things that have come into being that are visible in every kind of human endeavor, arts, literature, sports, all of it is, is in, in a way we have attained so much. We have, we have, our consciousness has come into contact with and relationship to so much and so much more is possible. And we're in, in this uh, exalted awareness of that possibility, tantalized, drawn, wanting to birth it into being because it can create so much more beautiful a world, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. It's, it's like right on the tip of our tongue. So we, we, we want that. And yet it can easily be snatched away if we go into a dystopian cultural regression in which it's a Mad Max world and the most uh, brutish and well-armed and vicious of us are the ones who survive that. And the whole richness that has been attained is largely wiped out, except perhaps in monastery-like eco-village enclaves that are some combination of uh, virtuous and remarkable and well-armed and really lucky in terms of how uh, climate chaos impacts their local area, because you never know who's going to get wiped out by what. So th there's no way you can strategize your way through this. And therefore, the peace movement that makes sense is to, for one thing, let this stop your strategizing, your addiction to knowledge and to control and to thinking that you can be in charge and that there's a strategic way through this that we can figure out and drop you into the deep silence of your mm. being where you're in contact with a, a, hopefully a, an overwhelming wave of gratitude for all that we have been given and an utterly heartbroken grief because much will be lost no matter what. People are dying around us all the time. I was just speaking to a woman whose mom just dropped away in another state and she couldn't see her. And this is happening to people all over the place. And we tend in, in our coping to armor our hearts. So the peace movement is one in which we become strong enough, evolved enough to be present with care and, 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 and some measure of real effective compassion, not uh, armoring our hearts at all, but made fully alive by this enormous opportunity. You have incarnated in the era where the Hubble images are showing you a 14 billion year trajectory of cosmic, biological, and cultural evolution, and you are the eyes of evolution seeing itself as if for the first time. I mean, what was this process about? It seems as though it was about articulating itself so fully that it could know itself fully. And where is it knowing itself most fully? To some degree, it's through us. So you're given this incredibly privileged vista 
way more sweeping than anything you've seen paragliding, no matter how high up. It's all coming into view, and it never did before in the whole history of the human adventure. And you are privileged to be awake as that, growing into something more, and obviously, obviously called to be a force for the wholeness and the sanity that can navigate these transitions, to soften these landings, so that as much as possible of all that is best in you and all that is best in others can make its way through these transitions further, such that the opportunity, and there is an evolutionary opportunity, can realize itself as much as possible. And that might simply be a kind of depth of consciousness and heart with which we take ourselves through a massive hospice project. And it might be the process through which we are able to snatch that moment of opportunity and come together in richer ways and create an extension of this marvelous evolutionary adventure that we're also privileged to be participating in. And we can't know, but the very same thing that would enable us to turn this whole thing around is the thing that is needed even if it can't be. And it's what would be the fulfillment of the soul journey of every hero's, you, you in your hero's journey, at your age, me in mine, for us to be the best of what it is, to be our unique genius in service of what's greater than ourselves. This is our brotherhood. This is our opportunity. This is why this is a sacred, sacred moment. Mother Nature sent us to our rooms and said, now you think about what you've done and you don't come out until you're ready to play nice. And here we are. And we're going nuts. People are so disturbed. There's crazy, you know, and some of us are listening. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a beautiful picture you paint. And it reminds me of the Stein article the, that we met in the conference talking about the, as he, pick, as he puts it, there has been a war that has broke out in heaven. And the war is fighting over the future of human nature, and it's taking place in our hearts every day. And every decision that we have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, and we have to choose between how we're going to act, whether we're going to work together or we're going to hoard toilet paper for our root chakra and our most basic needs, right? And that, as, as Zach, as I read that, I just broke out into tears both in fear that I had realized the, the seriousness of what I'm being called to do and my actual role in all of this, as well as like grief for the loss of what was an era that was so easy, seemingly effortless and silver platter and also a fear that the 
level of consciousness and violence that exists in the world will descend into some kind of uh, Orwellian dystopian novel type thing. Well, the, the fact that you let your heart become unarmored, the tears, this is the beginning of a real conversation between any two souls. We mm -hmm. have to let our stride be broken. Uh, in a way, these classic religious principles of repentance and forgiveness are at the core of it. We have met the enemy and he is us. The way you have lived, the way I have lived as privileged middle-class Americans, is what has been destroying the earth under our feet and we're entangled with it and therefore the there is room for repentance we're all in some sense addicts consumer addicts and we're arriving suddenly at the recovery center and there's no proven protocols and there's no therapists and people are ready to fight with each other but you know for us to bootstrap our way out of our addiction into another condition is is the order of the day but you don't get there with your head knowledge there's a deeper organ of knowing in the center of your chest and that heart intelligence i, I worked for some years with the institute of heart math and deceptively simple but very very profound shifts to a more holistic knowing that includes the brain and the gut, the brain and the heart, as well as the brain and the cranium, are, are at the core of this. And, and so there, the heart virtues are certainly capacity for repentance and certainly forgiveness, compassion and care, but also courage and generosity and creativity. And those heart virtues are absolutely essential that we're responding to this with an agitation of mental complexification, trying to imagine that our minds can mirror the hyper-complexity of the world that we're in. But the mind is so easy to fool. The mind is always, you know, that native uh, slogan, uh, chase two rabbits, catch none. That's what the mind is always doing. And so the mind is, is dispersed into complexity and we've got to discover the simplicity on the other side of complexity. And that's known at this deeper level of the being. There's an integral philosophy that is incredibly complex and accounts for all kinds of rich distinctions and it has real value. But the simplicity on the other side of that complexity is directly known at the level of you being able to improvise in the moment. It's like what you have to do on the slack line or what you do when you're skiing. There's some little unexpected gust of wind or, 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 or something under the surface of the snow that tweaks you off to one side. And that, that, that constant response, you know, in, in martial arts they say, uh, don't anticipate, don't hesitate be right in the moment. This, this is the kind of yoga you're, you're accomplished in. And, and so being here, fully present right now, a whole being with all of these different levels of intelligence operating and knowing 
that a human life, as ecstatic and wonderful and overwhelmingly beautiful a gift as it is, ultimately doesn't lead to some sort of heavenly fulfillment. It is an ordeal. This life is an ordeal. Like Buddha's teaching on dukkha. As wonderful as it, you have an intuition of infinity. You want to live that. You want to go back and engage those ecstatic experiences again and again and introduce more and more people to them. And the world can be changed by every, sharing everything that's brightest in your own field of experience. And you can't help but want to do that. Some part of the being aches to do that. And you will only incompletely be able to fulfill that. Even if things go as well as they possibly could, you're going to die trying and you're going to fall short of what will arise as aspiration. And the way in which human beings suffer, and more people are suffering by far, more people are feeling, tending to feel like roadkill in the midst of this, just like a, a whimpering pile of protoplasm just being snuffed out. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got to begin to honor the ordeal of the human world. The fact that that ordeal has a kind of divine humanity and nobility. And stop withdrawing our honoring respect and care and begin to, that's what's necessary if you want to begin to become some sort of a, a culture that could navigate these shocks without destroying what's best in us. Holy shit, Terry. There is this, there's a couple things I want to touch on there. One is the, I feel like you're talking about the simplicity on the far side of complexity. And I did a podcast interview with my friend who's a base jumper who was talking about the levity on the far side of tragedy. And I feel like that is almost what you're referring to here at the um, at the end where you're mentioning that our culture predominantly is taking away the honoring of our struggle, of our strife, of the reality of suffering in the human condition. I feel like the acknowledgement of that reality is an invitation in to take up arms in the war that we're fighting for the future of human nature. It's almost a starting point. You, it almost seems like to fully understand the the scope of what is at stake and what is what is entailed in just our own existence even just experientially even just emotionally is something that we have to have to have to come to terms with before we can become embodied as something that would move forward for good. 
we're we're um, there's a Kabbalistic notion of writing your name in the book of life, like the way you live is sort of a it does ripple out into the noetic field in some way. And uh, I feel that we are all appropriately really humbled by this because there are various ways. Like I said, we're all addicts, you know, in some sense, those of us who aspire to go beyond the limitations end up being hypocrites because our aspiration exceeds our embodiment. And a kind of general amnesty, you know, a, a really blanket forgiveness that is ready to be here in this messiness. You're imperfect, and yet you're really trying to be a stand for everything that is best. And you have been electrified by higher energetic transmissions you've 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 been given an initiation by your extreme sports experiences at the edge of life and death that you you're compelled you've got to give what you can you've got to pay it forward in whatever way you can and you don't know if you can fulfill that opportunity as fully as is necessary inevitably it will you 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 will succeed to some degree and you will fail to some degree and there's a, a kind of like what i'd really be interested in with you more than anything else would be to know that brightness of that soul that has you know that is flashing forward with that intensity especially it's it's exciting to me because you're cresting into these principles and you know you're awake to them becoming more and more awake to them while you're young and vital and you can kick ass and take names in a way that uh you know i'm older i can't uh you know if there's if there's some subset of the human race that's going to be awake to these potentials for the next stage of our evolution, but also able to fight in the streets with the uh, Nazi uh, survivalists uh, and, and, and still carve out a space, a safe space for the, the hearts in intelligence to have a, a, a safe place to continue to evolve and, and you know you're 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 a candidate i i I'm, I'm glad you exist i want to do what i can to pass along some of what i've been given and yet every one of us could be the first casualty for all i know you know some ridiculous unexpected, foolish thing could kill you before this podcast even gets published. We're all here in the incredible fragility. And that's fragility, as you know, as you know, from the kind of stuff you've done, your extreme sports, it's right on that edge of life and death. That's when you become most alive. And let this make us way more alive but not as a private experience 
not as if we're competitors with one another to be the most alive, but coming alive together, becoming something so that the we begins to reflect that initiatory brilliance and we actualize and as much of as as much as can be actualized no matter what our you know this book i wrote a new republic of the heart you know it uses this metaphor of of like we have to kind of step into citizenship in a different world in in order to be true to be a fat and happy middle-class citizen of Trump's United States of America was ignoble, not, not sufficient. Well, this new republic of the heart is, it's a metaphor for something that's already happening in countless ways all over the world. It's also a metaphor for something that hasn't come into being yet and that's striving to be born. It's also a metaphor for the true north uh, guidance that, by which I navigate. As a citizen of that new republic of the heart, I'm doing my best to be a source of some wisdom and clarity and empowerment to you and whoever's listening with you. Yeah, I can't tell you what the the encouragement and empowerment is real and i feel it and i so deeply appreciate it i really do i want to talk about your book a new republic of the heart and something just as you talk about this i think that there's a couple things that come up for me one is our hyper intellectualization of everything in general and still to this day right now the discourse that is being constantly banged into us is that we need to listen to experts we need to listen to scientists donald trump is stupid and we need to listen to the experts he doesn't listen to the experts and 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 my kind of shtick is that you know science has proven that what's bad for us to eat and what is good for us to do yoga and breath work and all this stuff. It's like, we don't, we don't, we only listen to science when it's a weaponized opinion that we can shame someone else's behavior with. And, uh, the subtle, much more subtle art of listening to our hearts is something that is largely lost on a population that, at this time really, really needs it. You know, if you just take a few breaths uh, to and from your heart and let your whole physiology relax and open and become coherent. And you trust that there is a deeper source of intelligence. It has nothing to do with the racing mind. That 
is a good practice. And I do it multiple times every day. The The moment that we're in is one philosopher, Timothy Morton, calls calls this a hyper object. The, the global warming is a hyper object. The pandemic is a hyper object. It means that I think I know what I mean by the pandemic, but the things I'm thinking about are only part of the phenomenon. And if you hear me talking about it, you'll think about it maybe in some some similar terms or maybe some different terms, and that'll be a different subset, and, and it's just vaster than anybody's discussion. So a little bit of humility about how we cope with things. Is, it, it, are we challenged with something that we should just figure out? I mean, our addiction to knowledge and control and strategically getting it right and taking it in the right direction might be blinding us and exaggerating some of our imbalances. There may be a more deep and direct form of sanity and health and wholeness that is related to the earth and the sun and the atmosphere and all the water that makes this planet what it is and where those primal elements are expressing a kind of primal intelligence and harmony through us. This is why indigenous wisdom has real relevance it's not that the indigenous elder says a thought that we never would have thought of on our own, or that the indigenous elder uh, has a specific bit of information we can write down, and gosh, I never could have learned that anywhere else. It's that there's a depth of being that it, the human body-mind reflects when it is living in a profound relationship with the earth, and the water, and the air, and the sun. And, you know, the story of how we all went wrong because of, you know, we took our first wrong turn at agriculture and, and, and all the whole human civilizational project is somehow evil and we ought to return to a more retro-romantic primal purity. We all want some simple moral lesson that we can take from this that absolves us of the enormous task of being present to a complexity beyond any simple modeling. I'm glad I live in a world where there are symphonies and cathedrals and all of the greatness of human culture. I don't think all of that was exactly only a wrong turn. It's breathtakingly beautiful. I want to be present with all that all of that stuff is awakened in me. And I want to learn from the simple 
integral presence of an embodied hunter-gatherer person of wisdom who can speak from an integrated relationship to the primal elements of the earth. And I also want to find a way to come into less, you know, so I, can't, I can't really get into integrity with my great-great-grandchildren's generation because we've, we've screwed it up. The generational injustice is so extreme. But I am really listening as to how I begin to live in caring relationship to those who will come and give my son and his wife and their children, if they are to have them, and all that come beyond as much as we can give that's really useful and really relevant. And pretending we know and railing again, and especially the focusing on the, the bad guys. I mean, sure, Trump is a horror show in terms of being a malignant narcissist and all the things that he's accused of, but spending our time and attention we, he, you know, clearly he needs to not be reelected, and there are all kinds of very practical things that he's attempting to do that do need to be opposed, and some measure of civic participation in a world in which much is at stake is appropriate. But the way that shapes your mind into the condemnation of the bad guy, and then you can be a good guy, takes you off the hook in a way that impoverishes the sacred opportunity of full participation in the moment. That is a profound lesson. That is a profound lesson. And it speaks to the motivations behind each and every one of our attempts to label someone else as wrong or label anything as good and bad. And I think what you're alluding to is that we are, that is merely an attempt to take ourselves off of the hook for the deep injustices that we know exist that are inherent in our existence. That is a, coping mechanism, it seems, that we are increasingly aware of our own impacts and guilt in a way, and yeah. we are trying to escape it. But of course, that's ego too, you know, because it's not about me. My uh, repentance is appropriate, like, holy shit, I'm a walking contradiction holy shit, I'm part of the problem I'm trying to address. You know, th th there's a lot of humbling that is appropriate. But a humbling that has us feeling identical to uh, uh, an ego who has failed and who is morally deficient is a complete delusion. Like, we are... 
if, if this whole evolutionary process wanted to know and express and experience itself as fully as it possibly could, and if we just for the moment say, okay, supposing the deep adaptation folks are right and we're headed for near-term societal collapse, then there's a moral obligation for us to see and be and enjoy and celebrate and incarnate the fullness that this whole evolutionary experiment made possible if we're the ones who are the crown of creation who get to be its fullest self-awareness and self-enjoyment and so, you know let the mystery adore itself most fully through this body mind let this glorious amazing manifestation know itself love itself serve itself celebrate itself worship itself most fully through me let me grow into that that's where i go especially because maybe i'll die alone unable to breathe with nobody around me i'd better be grateful now don't wait what a time to be alive we are the tip of the spear. We drew central casting said us, man. We must be capable of it as 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 completely inadequate to the task as every one of us is. We are the ones central casting said. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. And you know this what you're saying there, it you mentioned that we we wear this mask of knowing this mask that we pretend to know what the fuck is going on at any level, essentially. And as I interview these various people from all these different walks of life, from all over the world, this thread that I keep running into is removing the mask is to be emotionally vulnerable, to be present with the things that you don't know, to be humble, and it is it seems to be just such a cornerstone of any kind of positive change whether that be personal growth interpersonal relationships community societal global cosmic spiritual political it doesn't matter it is this it's this calling it seems this calling keeps coming through my podcast for us to remove our masks, for us to, to come into humility that, that we don't know. Yeah. And it's scary. And it's, it feels like, like exposure, but it also feels like a chance to let our guard down to set the weight down. Yeah. The, the masks are tiring. Yeah. It's so funny. In certain circumstances, I discover, well, I have to adopt the conventions of expressing myself in a kind of coherent way and, you know, in, in the context of something that is more conventional. But when I can feel the the wild, what I like best in you, I could have already touched, you know, there's a wildness, man. You're a wild dude. And you've been way wilder than I've even seen. And 
there's a wildness in me you haven't seen. Yeah. You know, takes one to know one. Yeah. <laughs> that wildness is the very thing that drove this evolutionary process in human beings. The wildness, don't you want to love this world into whatever its best expression is, hopefully going out to your great-grandchildren's generation, absolutely being everything that's healthiest so that it makes it through this tight squeeze we're in the midst of. And yet, if in that attempt you just become part of the blaze of light before there's a degeneration and a regression and a descent, that would still be an occasion for profound gratitude. Mm -hmm. And the wildness, you see, it's, it's a, there's wildness behind the gratitude. The, the, how does the wildness express itself? It's a yes. It's a yes to life. It's a yes to life and death. Mm -hmm. It's a yes to ecstasy and pain mm -hmm. and the ordeal of living and being a sacrifice in the end. Mm -hmm. Everyone who has ever lived has died. We will too. In fact, we may right now be in that quiet before the storm in which a different relationship to death, words coming from a deeper silence, a deep, deep, Receptivity may be necessary and possible. The levity on the far side of tragedy. Yeah. It's been an amazing honor talking to you today, Terry. It's been really fun, Terry. I so, so, so appreciate it. This whole time I've been trying to straddle curating a helpful conversation for other people while trying to soak up my time with a insightful mentor. Well, um, I'm really happy to have encountered you and I hope we'll be together again in some form or other. We will. We will. I've been going really hard on this podcast and I, um, I've got lots more interviews to do and I hope you'll come back on the show because you have some really deep wisdom that you've ruminated on for a long time and your prose is undeniably fluid and I love it. So I really appreciate you bringing that to the show today. Terrific. It's been a delight, Ari. And yeah. uh, I'll, uh, I, I will, maybe some of your listeners will be interested in my podcast or my other offerings. Uh, I guess you'll provide links or something. I will, but why don't you tell us about those? Well, uh, 
I decided that I could no longer be a so-called uh, personal growth or spiritual teacher about after my, my book, A New Republic of the Heart, came out. So my work is all done through a nonprofit that does business under that name, A New Republic of the Heart. And we have a virtual community of people who are attempting to be the change and to support one another, to kind of be the catalyst, catalysts for one another's evolutionary transformation and service to the world. And I uh, am through that nonprofit also conducting a podcast called State of Emergence, where I'm having conversations right here at the edge of the unknown. And my presumption is that the emergency is also the occasion for evolutionary emergence, where that which has never existed before can come into being. So, uh, I love it. I'd love to direct people to those resources and I'm excited to check out your podcast as well. State of emergence. I love that. Fantastic. Well, it's really been a pleasure to be with you, Ari. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Terry. I'm going to, I hope that, uh, I can lean into some of your teachings and have you as a mentor here as we move into this time between worlds. Yes, it is. Okay. Thanks so much, Terry. Let's talk soon. All right. Fantastic. Take care. Thank you. See you. Okay, you guys. Whew, man. Listening back to that recording is like, it's like, uh, gives me the warm and fuzzies and it makes me feel inspired and like I'm doing it. I am the show. I am the pirate radio. We are all in this together. And we're doing it, folks. So thank you so much, Terry. I love you, man. And if you like this podcast, if you think that these are the kind of conversations that we need to be having right now, then do your part. Support this podcast by sharing, reviewing, rating. Consider donating. PayPal.me slash Airy in the air. This is totally listener supported. There's no ads on this thing, if you haven't noticed. But... You guys stay healthy, stay sane, stay safe, stay happy, stay inspired. Grow some veggies, my friends. Grow some veggies. We're going to need those, all right? Until the next episode, we got so much stuff, so much good stuff coming up on this show. Thanks for being a part of it. Love you guys. Peace.